Good morning. Uh, so it's really good to be with you this Sunday. Uh, in the life of the church this summer, we are entering a season that we call ordinary time. Although we both know that uh, there's really no such thing. During so-called ordinary time, really extraordinary things keep happening. And here in our own Vox community, we are welcoming babies and celebrating marriages and graduations and really important milestones like coffee returning. <laughs> uh, and also, let's acknowledge that uh, things keep happening around us that are also extraordinarily tragic and violent. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling this week will feel violent to many. We are also collectively grieving losses due to gun violence, to family violence and spiritual and religious violence, racial and political and military violence. And a question on the mind of many of us is this. How do we face violence? How do we confront and defy and disrupt it without becoming violent ourselves? So uh, our bodies are hardwired to imitate other people's bodies. And epidemiologists tell us that violence has this way of moving through a community or a neighborhood much like a contagious disease, like a virus. So we need antibodies. We need a vaccine of sorts to prevent us from becoming carriers. And our text for today invites us to notice Jesus' commitment to nonviolence and how his story gives us a different body to imitate. And at the same time, if you're like me, I have often misunderstood nonviolence. I've been given mixed messages about it, especially as a woman. I have mistaken nonviolence for passivity or non-resistance or tolerating oppression, but that's not Jesus' practice. So I want to invite us to become curious, what is nonviolence really? And perhaps even more importantly, what is it not? So as we follow along in Luke's gospel today, I want us to notice three elements of Jesus' nonviolence. So let's listen for his use of creativity and the element of surprise and humor, which may turn out to be the most powerful weapon of all. And as we go along, I'll share some modern examples of nonviolence in action and invite us to imagine together what it might mean for us to become a community known for our imitation of these practices. So we're here in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where we read this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, meaning killed, he set his face to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on up ahead. And on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival. But they wouldn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So let's notice that Luke is suggesting that once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he knows he's going to be killed. So why then does he set his face to go there? And why does he take his time winding through towns and villages, amassing a crowd of followers and sending messengers on up ahead? Let's consider that this is a creatively nonviolent response to a destructively violent trauma that Jesus has just suffered. 
Jesus' cousin John has just been murdered by Herod. And here's an early church image of John the Baptist holding his own head on a platter. John's murder was the latest in a series of acts of violence inflicted by Herod's family of oppressors on Jesus' family of peacemakers. Starting with Herod's own father who hunted down the infant Jesus when he was born, and now Herod's son sits on the throne and has just murdered Jesus' cousin John in this really violent and gruesome manner. So let's empathize for a moment with the grief and the horror that Jesus is feeling, along with Mary, his mother, and Elizabeth, his aunt, John's mother. And the person responsible for this violence is in Jerusalem. So that's where Jesus is headed. With this army of followers marching through the countryside to declare war on their enemy. Sending messengers on up ahead as soldiers would expect to be received and put up for the night. This is what this scene would have looked like. So all of the townspeople looking on would have understood what this means. Jesus is on a mission to avenge the slaying of his cousin. He's doing exactly as expected. But we know that Jesus is actually set on defying those expectations. He has a nonviolent plan to confront Herod using creativity. So we've arrived now at the first nonviolent practice I'd like us to notice. Jesus uses creativity to confront violent oppressors. So I want to share with you an example of something similar. Activist Jamila Rakib tells us that about seven years ago in Guatemala, the women had uh, just had enough with the violent and corrupt government, and 12 middle-aged women put out this call on Facebook, and they asked their friends, come join us in Guatemala City. We're going to demand that corrupt officials resign. And they asked that no one be harmed in the process. So news spread with the hashtag, renuncia ya, resign already. And to the women's surprise, 30,000 people showed up. And the organizers, they came up with dozens of creative strategies. At one point, organizers had hundreds of eggs delivered to government buildings with the message, if you don't have the huevos, the balls, to stop corrupt officials from running for office, you can borrow ours. And we're told that within five days, the president and dozens of corrupt officials resigned already. Researchers tell us that countries with creative nonviolent movements are 10 times more likely to become democratic in five years. And whereas armed violent revolts, they may succeed about 26% of the time, creative nonviolent movements succeed twice as often. So, Vox, how might we learn to imitate some of these practices? I think one way might be for us to just look around and notice the artists and musicians and storytellers and photographers around us who are teaching us to be truth-tellers. How can we support those among us who are creating art to creatively confront violence and oppression that we're called by God to face. With that question in mind, uh, let's look at how our passage in Luke continues with this. 
So they entered a village to prepare for Jesus' arrival, but the village did not receive him. So then two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they suggest this rather violent solution. Lord, do you want us to command fire down from heaven to consume them? (laughs) So these brothers of thunder, as Jesus calls them, were still not entirely sure what Jesus is up to. They may have expected, they may even be hoping that Jesus is on a mission to violently destroy Herod and anyone else who stands in his way. But we know that Jesus is actually set on defying those expectations. He has in mind a nonviolent plan to surprisingly defy Herod's authority. So we've arrived now at the second nonviolent practice I want us to notice. Jesus uses the element of surprise to defy the authority of violent oppressors. And so to help us think about what this might look like in action, I want to invite you to bring to mind Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek. So for a long time, I've misunderstood this teaching. I imagined it as sort of inviting further injury or like non-resistance. But theologians like Walter Wink and others have changed my understanding of this teaching. So would you like to see a demonstration? Okay. So I will invite Ben and Caleb to come up and help me with this. (laughs) Okay. So... Caleb, would you be willing to be the striker? And would you be willing to be the strikey, Ben? Okay. Okay. So, Caleb, how about first just show us, like, a solid, good, right hook? What does that look like? Okay, pause right there. All right, so we know that this is not how it would have gone. What's wrong with this picture? It's the wrong cheek. So Caleb's hitting the left cheek. Jesus explicitly says if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. So Caleb, are you able to strike him on the right cheek? What would that look like? Okay, stop. (laughs) All right, so we also know that's not how it would have gone. What's wrong with that picture? It's the right cheek, but Caleb's using the wrong arm. The left hand is forbidden for any public action. The left hand is only reserved for unclean acts. Acts like what? Wiping. Wiping your ass. Okay, so can we try it one more time, Caleb? With the right hand, are you able to strike his right cheek? Okay, stop. That's the only way it would have worked, the backhand. And the backhand is not for injuring someone. The backhand is for humiliation. An oppressor backhands someone with less power to intimidate them. And then, okay, you can put your hand up. (laughs) Jesus is saying, don't stand for that. Refuse to accept humiliation any longer. So when he tries to backhand you, turn the other cheek. So can we see what that looks like? So backhand him again. Now, Ben, turn the other cheek. (laughs) Okay, so Caleb, what are you going to do now? Are you able to backhand him twice? Why? His nose is in the way. So, Ben, show us that one more time when you turn the other cheek. The only option left open 
is the left cheek, which is a perfect target for a blow of the fist, but only equals fight with fists. And the last thing that the oppressor wants is to establish this person's equality. Can we thank them for showing us how it's done? (laughs) Thanks, friends. Representative John Lewis once asked, uh, he was once asked about whether nonviolence equates to passivity, and he said this. Nonviolence is not the absence of violence. It's the presence of justice. It's bringing the dirt and the filth out from under the rug, out of the corners, and into the open light so we can deal with it. And as Virginia challenged us last week, this is the work of God's people. So friends, how might we learn to imitate Jesus by surprisingly defying the authority of oppressors in our schools, maybe in our workplaces, in the larger church? Can we commit right now to refuse to ever allow anyone else to be humiliated in our presence? And remembering that the expectation is that we will fight, flee, or freeze, how can we learn to imitate Jesus by surprisingly doing something different? All right, so holding that question in mind, let's look now at how our passage wraps up with this. We're told then they went on to another village, and as they were going along, someone says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere. So this person who says, I will follow you, represents those who were expecting and maybe even hoping that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to violently remove Herod from power and become their new king. And we know in John 6 that the crowd intended to force Jesus to become their king. So when Jesus answers, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere. He's making it humorously clear. I do not intend to violently remove Herod from power. Herod is not a lion to be feared and equal. He's just a fox. A few verses from now, Jesus will make a second joke about Herod being a fox, a fox guarding a hen house. And Jesus humorously says, I'm going to leave your house to you. I'm going to leave your house to you. So we've arrived now at the third nonviolent practice I want us to notice. Jesus uses disruptive humor to neutralize fear. And I'll share with you a story of something that happened in Serbia in the 90s when nonviolent resistors did something similar. So... There was a violent regime that was oppressing and starving the Serbian people, and the corrupt president made a farce of putting these barrels in public places and asking for donations to plant crops, but the food never materialized. So nonviolent resistors use disruptive humor to expose the farce. So here's what they did. They placed barrels in public places too, with a photo of the corrupt president on the side, and they invited people to line up, drop in a coin, and then they would be given a stick, and they could hit the side of the barrel. And if 
someone didn't have a coin, uh, any money to donate because of corrupt politics, they could hit the barrel twice. <laughs> Lines formed around the block as coins were dropped and the barrel was hit. And it was a, a moment of comic relief about a really tragic situation. But the real fun began when the police arrived because they couldn't figure out who to arrest. The shoppers lined up, the people who had donated. So eventually they decided to remove the barrel, carting it off in the police car. And the photo in the newspaper the next day read, police arrest barrel. <laughs> and the resistors claimed that the donations had been such a huge success, the police were now off to give the money to the president so he could finally retire. <laughs> The Serbians call this laftivism. And it's a good word for this nonviolent practice of using disruptive humor to neutralize fear. And I think we may think of this as two sides of the same practice, laftivism and lament, humor and honesty, truth-telling and tears, this twofold strategy for Facing violence, confronting and defying and disrupting it without becoming violent ourselves. So uh, as we close, I'll leave us with one final example. You may remember these scenes from the film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell. It tells of how the women of Liberia successfully brought a nonviolent end to the civil war that had been ravaging their country. And the war was gruesome. It was killing their brothers and fathers and husbands and sons, and it had dragged on for 14 years, and yet the men couldn't find a way to end the war. And so the women had just had enough. So first they gave up cooking for the men, but the men still couldn't find a way to end the war. Then the women gave up having sex with the men, but the men still couldn't find a way to end the war. The women tried packing the hallways outside the door of where the men were meeting and refusing to let them out of the room. And still the men couldn't find a way to end the war. So finally the women, the wives and the mothers and the sisters and the daughters, they threatened to begin stripping in broad daylight. And you know what? The men suddenly found a way to end the war. <laughs> Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere. By using creativity and surprise and disruptive humor, Jesus is exposing the ridiculousness of violence, the sheer non-necessity of it. He's outfoxing the fox. And in this story, Jesus is revealing to us something even more transformative. The entirely nonviolent face of God. This is who God is. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he is going to face the fox, and he will be eaten. This is my body. Take, eat. And yet, nevertheless, I will live. And in this, Jesus is giving us a new understanding of God's enduring nonviolence toward us, even in moments where we may fail to live up to our nonviolent intentions. 
So, Vox, what would it mean for us to become known as a community immune to violence? When I think about facing violence alone, I feel overwhelmed. But when I look around at your faces, I feel inspired that we're learning together what nonviolence is and what it's not. And I feel hopeful that as we continue to reflect on the nonviolence of Jesus, the human face of God, that we will find in ourselves a growing resemblance. Please pray with me. Loving God, disarm us with your humor. And when we think we can no longer be surprised, defy our expectations. And when our creativity is suppressed, boost us with your story. And when we lament that death always wins, remind us of your body. In the name of God, the peace lover, Christ, the risen jokester, and the spirit who weeps and laughs with us. Amen.